Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We already have people waiting, which is great to see. I appreciate your interest. Spreading the Dhamma is a very important thing in my mind. It's important in my life as something that I can do that's of that's wholesome, that's of benefit to me, first of all, makes me a better person. And it's right for me to do. And it makes me a better person and it's right for me to do because I think it's a benefit to other people as well. I mean, I know the Dhamma is. All I hope is that I have the capacity to present the Dhamma not present to you what is not Dhamma, present to you the truth, hopefully not present to you anything that is not the truth. I'm not infallible, of course, and from time to time I might say things that are not correct, and if I intentionally said something wrong or unintentionally said something wrong, I apologize. Well, I've Try to have no ego about that, no stubborn, stubborn clinging to our pride, no. not wanting to admit that we're wrong, we'll try our best, I will try my best to admit when I'm wrong, except when it comes to animals. <laughs> no, like recently someone... Uh, Someone took umbrage at my views on pets. That's a hard one. So I'm, I, let's let's make a special special uh, allowance. If anyone has questions about pets, let's put them in top tier so that just for for maybe this week and the next week, just so that uh, I'll try my best to. Remember and speak from the Dhamma, not speak from opinion or speak from partiality or bias. Try and speak from the Buddha's teachings on that. So today uh, I thought I'd talk about the Indipada. I think I talk about this often enough. But it came up this morning, and there are some ideas about it that I think are interesting that I may not have covered in detail. So the Idipada are are a very very special group. They're not the the, the most important group by any means, but. They're a very special group of dhammas in that they apply not only to Buddhist practice, but they apply to life. And I've said this before. I remember one time when I was in Thailand, a group of German filmmakers came to see me. They had come to shoot some film in Thailand, and my uncle, who lives in Thailand and knew I was, um, well, he was my sponsor for my ordination, gave me my bowl and robes 
uh, he they they were looking for some sort of blessing, and he thought, well, why don't I bring them to see the my my nephew? He brought them up, and so they weren't Buddhists. They weren't really interested in Buddhism either very much, I think either. But they wanted a blessing, so I gave them some. I chanted some blessings for them. But then I gave them a talk, and I talked to them about these four itipada, and really, um, I think was clear that you don't have to be a Buddhist to appreciate the four itipada. They're so they are not specifically meditation teachings, though they are a part of the truth, and they're the truth about success or the truth about accomplishment. If you have some work, some activity that you're undertaking, there are four things required to succeed. And, of course, these apply just as much to meditation practice and Buddhism as they do to anything else. So they are very important for us. Moreover, um, means of success in any endeavor is an incredibly important uh, point of knowledge, knowing what are the things that will allow you to succeed is essential. And it's a question that comes up. I maybe don't get a question, how do I, how can I succeed? I don't get them that often. But it certainly, whether people ask it or not, it's a question in mind when undertaking anything. How, how shall I proceed? How shall I succeed in this work that I'm doing? How shall I succeed in meditation practice? How can I succeed? So the four idipada, they're general qualities of mind that allow you to succeed, are chanda, virya, chitta, and vimangsa. I give you the Pali. I'm not so comfortable with my translations of them. I'm not even so comfortable with the translation of idipada. So idi, idi means power. Uh, accomplishment, power, more literally. Pada means path. But it isn't just about power. It's about distinction, accomplishment, success, really. I think it's, it gets to the point of it. Chanda, Vidya, Chitta, Vimangsa. So this morning we were studying the Vimangsaka Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya in our study group. And we were talking about Vimangsa, also talking about the other four Idipada. And I've talked about these before. Many of you will be familiar with them. But they don't always succeed. One thing you have to note about these four is that they have to be understood and practiced appropriately in order for them to succeed. So for them to succeed in helping you succeed, they have to be approached properly, understood correctly. So chanda, chanda is a word that can be wholesome or unwholesome. It's quite often used in an unwholesome sense to mean desire. It 
And as we all know, Buddhism looks somewhat askance at the state of desire in the mind. And it's a question that often comes up in one form or another. One form of the question is, um, we say we don't, we don't, we, we, we try not to desire, we come to let go of desires, but what about the desire to become enlightened? If we are critical of desire in general, what about the desire to practice meditation? Isn't that a desire? How can you become free from desire by doing something, by, by desiring to do something? And and it goes a bit deeper because in the time of the Buddha there were actually people who there were spiritual people who who subscribed to this idea, and so they taught a doctrine of non-doing, ultimately just lying down to die, because it, <clears throat> if you undertake to meditate, there's obviously some desire still involved. So the question, the general question is whether desire can ever be wholesome. And I have heard some Buddhists say that desire can be wholesome and that the reason it can be wholesome is if it leads you to freedom from desire. And Ananda, Sankha mentioned this morning that, uh, one, that Ananda once said something similar to that, that when you get to the end of the, the road, you have no more desire. But to understand it like that is a bit simplistic, and it's not quite what Ananda said. He clarified, he qualified what was meant by the word desire. So the problem is with words. But chanda means desiring to do something, right? So we're talking about what leads to success. If you, if you want to succeed at something, you have to want to succeed. You have to want to do it. That's the idea. But that's not quite accurate. And it's hard because the word want implies desire but doesn't always refer to desire. So we conflate it, we confuse this. We think we want to do something or we think we have wanting because we say we want to do something. When in fact it's just language. You don't need to want to do something in order to do it. In fact, the best reasons for practicing Buddhism are not anything to do with wanting. The best reasons to practice Buddhism are to do with wisdom and understanding and insight into reality, starting with things like insight into old age, sickness, death. When we appreciate these truths of life, we become very keen on practicing without any desire or wanting. It's not wanting there. It's understanding. You might say appreciation of the truth, of the importance, of the urgency. And so it seems like you want to meditate very much, but it's not wanting. It's a sense of urgency, sense of necessity, sense of rightness, ultimately. So chanda doesn't actually, it isn't the word that you'd always use for wanting, but it does have some connotation of desire. I would say something like 
um, satisfaction almost when you're satisfied with the work. In Thai they say kwam pa jai, which basically means satisfaction or contentment. You have to be keen to do it. And you can be keen to do things for many reasons. Desire, fear, arrogance, conceit, pride will make you do things, right? These are not good reasons to do things. But they all help to succeed in various things, not, not in Buddhism so much. But they're not the only things that impel you to do things. You don't need desire or fear or anger or so on. Arrogance, conceit, pride. With wisdom, even with faith, confidence. If you have confidence in the Buddha and he tells you to do something, you read that the Buddha said to do this or that, just that confidence in him must be a good thing. Must be a good thing to do. Must be the right thing to do. You need to do it. But be that, however that may be, you need chanda. And my point was, if you desire, if you do have the desire to do something, if there is wanting, even wanting to become enlightened, it can be a real hindrance in your practice. It will impel you to act, but it will not likely help you succeed. Because desire, liking and so on, wanting, as with fear, fear, pride, whatever, makes you do things for unwholesome reasons, it clouds the mind. And so in this one instance, it's not really going to help you succeed because your capacity to see clearly is going to be hampered, hampered by your very efforts to, do, to engage in the activity. There's a story of a monk who went off in the forest, and he was, he was a famous teacher, and he thought, well, I have to become enlightened now. And so he really yearned for it. And it stressed him out. It ended up just stressing him, him out, his desire for it. In some ways, the inclination to do things, to, the inclination to act in meditation is just simply an inclination to see clearly. And that inclination isn't even really desire in any form. It's just a depth of mind, a greatness of mind that inclines towards clarity or that is able to appreciate clarity. So this is a mind that leads us to mindfulness, leads without any hopes or aspirations, just with an inclination and a gravitation towards it. The second idipada is virya. In virya as well, we were talking about this morning, does virya mean you have to work, you have to push yourself, you have to have a sense, this sense of urgency, shouldn't that lead you to really work very hard? And the answer is yes, it should, and it does. But again, it's not working hard at becoming exhausted by the practice. 
It's working hard at straightening out the mind. It's working hard at being present. And it doesn't look very much like exerting yourself at all. It's quite calm and peaceful, in fact. It can be stressful in, inside. If someone looks at you, they wouldn't think that you're very energetic at all. Walking very slowly, methodically, no expressions on your face. Now, you might be very stressed inside in the beginning. But the exertion isn't even to fight against stress. It isn't to fight against distraction. The exertion is just to stay with it, to be with it, to be here and now, to be present, to be conscious and mindful so you can gain the clarity of mind. It takes a lot of effort, it does. It takes a lot of effort, especially because we are lazy. We have a, an inclination to mm, to rest, to wallow. Our minds aren't balanced. We meditate and we find ourselves falling asleep because our mind is sluggish. So our practice is not to force ourselves awake or force ourselves to be energetic or anything. And it's simply to, it's a, some sense, in some sense, force ourselves to just observe what's there. I wouldn't say forcing is a good description, but keep ourselves just experiencing things as they are. to learn to appreciate the reality. The third idipada is citta. Citta here, well, citta literally means mind, so you can't translate this one directly as well, but citta also very often means focus, concentration. If you want to succeed in anything, you need to focus on it. You have to keep your attention on it. You can't lose lose sight of it. You can't get sidetracked, distracted. But but equally important, you can't become too absorbed in it. If you are too overly focused. You overly focus, you won't be able to see whether you're doing properly, how you're doing, you won't be able to adjust. Obviously focus is important, it's important in meditation, but why we, we don't actually emphasize it in our meditation practice, and by we I include the Buddha, because if you, obviously he did emphasize samadhi, he did emphasize this concept of focus but when you look at the Satipatthana Sutta he doesn't even mention it in 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 the beginning part he uses he says atapi sampajano satima and the commentary even asks why didn't he include concentration if you focus on a concentration it misses the point of course concentration you need concentration but concentration isn't the direction Concentration is the force that sends you in the direction, but if the concentration is in the wrong direction or in the, in the wrong activity, 
all it does is propel you in the wrong direction. So the focus is on the activity and cultivating concentration or focus on that activity. Focusing on being mindful. It's implied, the commentary says. And it, it's important that it's implied because if you focus too much, yeah, there's problems. And the, the real problem with all of these, the well, a major problem with all of these, you can see in, in how they interfere with the fourth itipada, which is vimangsa. I don't know if you could say vimangsa is the most important, but vimangsa does relate to wisdom. It literally means something like analysis or examination, maybe reflection it includes. It includes all the ways in which we uh, we observe our activity, we oversee our activity, and by which we adjust our activity. And so if chanda goes wrong, if you are too eager to practice, eager to do anything, even practice meditation, too focused and desirous of the goal, it blinds you. It's very easy to just overstep and just practice, practice, practice without stepping back to say, hey, wait a minute, what's my state of mind even at this moment? Vimangsa is this capacity to adjust your work, adjust your activity, to be aware of not just what you're doing, but how you're doing it. Vidya as well, if you have too much effort, too energetic, you get distracted easily. If you have too much focus, again, you, you plow on like an ox without necessarily understanding and appreciating and really being conscious of how you're how you're doing what you're doing. So we monks, I think, in two ways comes about one through actual reflection, stopping and stopping during your practice, after your practice, making making some observations about what happened and what you may be missed and so on. It's one of the things that goes on during our reporting sessions daily when, when people are here or weekly during the at-home course. We go over some of the things you might have missed. We analyze your practice together. It's very useful. But another way is we monks are really in practice, is in meditation practice, is a part of mindfulness. It's a part of the benefit of mindfulness. Because mindfulness isn't really about focus, uh, not exclusively. It's about seeing clearly. And so we monks are a part of that, the ability to discern right from wrong, good from bad, the clarity to see how you're doing what you're doing, not just what you're doing, and really focusing on how you're doing. Because the how is is, is the quality of it. So ultimately, the, the, these are a good guide to not just how to succeed with something, but some of the qualities that are important in the meditation, in mindfulness practice. With mindfulness, there's a, the right inclination, 
sort of a balancing where you're not too focused on the goal, but that you are content and you are satisfied. You're not desirous of doing something else. And that you have the effort not to do this or do that, not to rush ahead or force yourself forward, but to be present, the energy to not get become distracted, to not go astray, to not get lost in thought, past or future. Being able to focus jitta, focusing on reality, and vimangsa, being able to see See and really, really adjust. You know, the adjustment that comes from seeing is so important. It's a huge part of the progress in the practice. When we practice mindfulness, our, we start to adjust based on what we see. We will see the bad habits in the mind. We develop over many, many years. We weren't mindful. Through mindfulness, we adjust. We'll see the vimangsa happening really by itself. So these four give a good description of mindfulness in another way. The Buddha's teaching is looking like looking at a gem. You can look at it from all sides and it's beautiful from all sides and there's many different facets. So that's the topic for today. Now we'll go on to take questions if there are any questions. Questions? Let's begin. If I have a vague emotion that I can't identify, is it okay to note it as feeling rather than saying knowing if that's more how it strikes me? Or should I stick with knowing? Yeah, emotions aren't knowing, they're, they're feelings. I mean, you, that, that would be a good word for them, feeling. Knowing is used for when you're aware that something's happened. You just note that awareness. Knowing is just being aware. Can you elaborate on the technique of cultivating a mindful state of mind? rather than noting absolutely everything? Well, so, okay, so it's not about noting absolutely everything. That doesn't, it's not, um, that, that's not the goal, to be, to be able to note absolutely everything. Noting is a tool. Noting is the tool that creates, evokes the mindful state of mind. A mindful state of mind is one that grasps an object that experiences the object clearly, right? There's a clarity of mind involved, and, and it's what allows for clarity about the object, the clear awareness and, and appreciation of it as it actually is, free from uh, reaction, free from bias, free, free from prejudice, and so on. So the noting is is what allows this, is what evokes this. It's a tool. And so it's not helpful if you think of trying to note absolutely everything. You just have to note one thing, that one thing that is present, and then you do it again and again. Right? But every time you do that, you're evoking, you're straightening the mind in a sense.
I used to meditate intensively in Myanmar for one year. When I told my teachers that I wanted to keep meditating until I reached Nibbana, they said Nibbana is a long journey. Was what they said, right? I, I guess they probably meant Nibbana, getting to Nibbana is a long journey, because Nibbana, of course, isn't a journey itself. But that's probably what they meant, is getting there is a long journey. Uh, I mean, they're they're not technically right because someone can reach nibbana, can experience nibbana yeah, in the in the next moment. It's not. I mean, it, they're not technically right because it differs from person to person. But practically speaking, it's it's not uncommon. I mean, it's not unreasonable for them to say it's going to take a long time to get there. However, if one does as you were, meditate intensively. It really shouldn't take that long to experience what we might call nibbana or cessation. I mean, there are more technical terms for it, but basically nibbana, at least for the first time. So it would become what one would call a sotapanna. I mean, Mahasi Sayada said something that makes a lot of sense. I mean, he's critical of this as well. And he said, if, if someone says it takes a long time, they're actually uh, denigrating the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha's teaching is not something that is uh, is impotent like that. He was saying they're 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 denigrating the potency of the Buddha's teaching, and he said in his mind or from from his experience or from his observation, an average person shouldn't take more than a month to have some. And then I think he qualified it by saying some special uh, realizations. But I think it's probably pretty clear what he meant, and I I would agree with his estimation really. I mean, it, it absolutely depends on the individual, and it's not something you should be assured of either way, that it's going to take a long time or that it's going to be a short time. But you shouldn't be discouraged or think that it has to take years and years. He said that can lead people to be discouraged, and it's not really true. Can you explain the distinction between forcing equanimity and cultivating it as a result of our practice? I wouldn't really encourage people to do either. Obviously not forcing, but also not really cultivating. Because, see, I've heard this being encouraged for, for people to cultivate equanimity. And it it's... It's um, problematic because there are different kinds of equanimity. And so without qualifying it, and not even just without qualifying it, without um, cultivating the practice that leads to the good kind of equanimity, it's, it's very, very, very easy or even likely that you might uh, enter into a state that is equanimous but of no value or even perhaps harmful most likely of no value, of little or no value. So, like wisdom even, it's not the practice. The practice is mindfulness. The practice is the satipatthana. When you practice the four satipatthana, mindfulness arises, sati arises. When sati arises, there's seeing clearly. When there's seeing clearly, then there's equanimity. It has to go in that order. If you skip all of those steps and you say you're going to cultivate equanimity, unless that means 
you're going to cultivate equanimity by allowing it to arise because you see clearly which arises because you were mindful, which arises because you were practicing the four satipatthana. You really haven't gone in the right direction. You see, it has to go in that order. It isn't a one-step thing where you cultivate equanimity. The equanimity that arises is simply the seeing things as they are and having a relationship with things whereby you see things as what they are. See, understand what that means. It means that it's not an intellectual, oh, I know what this is. It's that's how you perceive it. You perceive pain as what? Pain. And, with, and that means without disliking, without any idea that it's bad, it's me, it's mine, you know, a problem. Seeing things as they are doesn't just mean um, some some partial aspect of, of your observation of it, like, oh, I see it how it is and I like it, right? If you see it how it is, if that's how you see it as what it is, there is no liking or disliking or anything like that. There's no room for it or no reason for it. How does one calm anger generated from practice of celibacy? There are ways to calm anger. You can calm it by metta. can help if it's towards a person especially. But the best way is still mindfulness. Just note the anger. Say angry, angry. And again, not trying to calm it. Trying to see it clearly. And anger is pretty easy. It gets calmed. It just disappears on its own. It comes back, of course. But it's very important that you're mindful of it. Getting the skill of being mindful of things like anger is very important. Because, of course, otherwise you do things you'll regret. How should one approach in your constant feeling that I'm not merely observing the rising and falling, but rather manipulating it somehow? Yeah, that's usually just a feeling. It's usually just a tension or something. And and it's accompanied by a, a desire, a wanting to control, wanting it to be a certain way, wanting for it to be smooth or comfortable, even wanting not to control it. And so you have to note both of those, any kind of wanting or desire, any kind of frustration because you can't get what you desire. I mean, this is all part of the learning process. You start to see that things don't work the way you think they do. They aren't under your control the way that you think they are. But you can also just note the tension if it feels there's this, there's this feeling of tension that comes that makes you think you're somehow not letting it go naturally. That's not exactly accurate. It's just the tension. Just say tense, tense. Feeling. If you don't like the feeling, of course, disliking. I control my breathing while meditating, and it is spilled to my everyday life. How do I stop being conscious of my breathing and stop controlling it? So, sort of the same question, but here we highlight the one of the main problems with this is a huge part of the the problem is that you take it as a problem and that you are trying to make it stop. So I've said this before, wanting not to, not to want, uh, trying to control yourself not to control is, is the problem, right? You're making it worse. 
So, so the question isn't really good. When you ask, how do I stop uh, being conscious of my breathing? How do I stop controlling it? Implies that you, you want to control this, this reality, right? And so it's more inclination to control, and that's the problem. The, the practice isn't, in this instance, to stop being conscious of the breathing. The practice is, of course, to be mindful of the fact that you're conscious of it. If you know it, you can say knowing. If you feel it, you know feeling. And to be conscious of whatever it is that makes you think you're controlling it. Again, it's sometimes tension in the body, sometimes it's desire and so on. Controlling is just the interpretation of what you experience. But try and look at what you actually experience, and rather than trying to change that, always, always, rather than trying to change that, try and see it clearly. Use mindfulness to help you see it clearly. I've been weeping every day from loss. I'm losing my patience for letting it be and noting it. Is there anything more I can do? Being able to function in lay life has been near impossible. So losing your patience means things are changing, and that can be, to some extent, a good sign. But, I mean, it's a sign that you may be progressing to anger, right? Sadness and anger are the same sort of mind state, and it starts to coalesce, especially if you're mindful. It, it, it doesn't have as much opportunity, so it coalesces into things like anger, frustration. So try and note the anger or disliking or frustration. Losing your patience isn't, I mean, that, that's not an excuse. I mean, that's not an excuse to do something else or to stop. That's just, um, just a new experience. If you're losing your patience like you weren't losing your patience before, then oh, something new then you should be very vigilant to be noting that because that's an anger-based mind. Wanting it to go away, that's vibhavatanha, that's another defilement. Is there anything more I can do to get rid of it? To watch those, those states of wanting to get rid of something. Being able to function in lay life, yeah, sometimes you can't. I mean, your state of mind, I'm not trying to belittle your loss or your, your suffering. Certainly it can be a real challenge. I can't help you with that. Sometimes you have to put aside the practice if you really feel like you're not able to function and you have to do what it takes to, to function. But honestly, it, 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 if you can see your way through, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And, and it sounds like you're actually getting there, though it may not sound like it, seem like it. Try and just move on to noting the frustration and whatever is the lack of patience. How should one approach their practice when they notice they have some extent of anger when noting unpleasant things? Well, simply note angry, angry. And that's it, right? How does meditation contribute to enlightenment? Oh, well, there's an open question. Um, right, well, I'll give you the very standard, a very step-by-step -step answer. It'll be fairly quick, I think. So we, our practice is mindfulness. I don't know if you've read my booklet on how to meditate, but that sort of goes over our technique that we use to cultivate mindfulness. And by noting, by practicing according to the booklet, you do 
develop mindfulness. You're able to grasp things. You know, really have a clear grasp of your experiences. And that allows you to see them clearly without any of the baggage that comes from you know, liking and disliking and so on. Because of that lack of baggage, our um, our hold on things becomes reduced and our perception of things changes. So samsara and our experience of samsara requires this continuous clinging or the, this this sort of karmic activity that makes us do things and create things. And as you give that up, your mind slowly takes its claws out of samsara until there comes a point where the mind just sees, just rejects, uh, sort of rejects experience. So it starts to see that, it, it goes gradually starting to see that nothing is worth clinging to, that every, the things you thought were satisfying are not satisfying, the things you thought were stable are not stable. Just seeing everything as unstable, unsatisfying, uncontrollable until your mind just gets fed up and lets go. There's an enough and, and backs off. Now that, that saying enough is the, I mean, it, it's a bit of a simplification or understatement. It's not just enough. It's like absolute and complete clarity that nothing is worth clinging to, like, like really absolute, 100%, to the point where the mind just lets go. Um, and that's the experience of enlightenment. So read our booklet if you haven't. If you want, you can do the at-home course. There are lots of slots now. I think with the pandemic sort of getting a little better, people have gotten uh, gone on with their lives, fewer people interested. So there's, there's lots of space on our at-home course chart. It's all free. So you're welcome to join. How do you focus on something? Well, the, the, the way that we recommend, that I think is a really good way to focus on something, because first of all, let's say that there are different ways to focus on something, and there are different, different techniques used to focus on something. Um, and it's possible to focus on something in a way that is actually unwholesome, though usually meditation is not that sort of thing it's usually wholesome it's just there there's wholesomeness that's associated with under with clarity and understanding and there's wholesomeness that's kind of bereft of understanding and clarity uh, so the best way but the best way really for either actually is the use of a mantra a mantra is a word the name of the object and when you repeat that to yourself it's a really good technique or tool to create focus based on the object. So, again, a fairly open question, but basically uh, the best way I would say is to use a, a mantra to remind yourself. It keeps bringing your mind back to the object. Can you help explain why it is that because of my own depression and physical injuries, I get so mad and depressed that I want to bring everyone down. And I know I do not want to hurt others, but I watch myself do it. 
habit. Habit. Um, I mean, the simple ang- the simple reality of anger is that something comes up and there's a disliking of it. There's a recognition of it being like something else that you don't like. And the reaction because of that recognition, the reaction based on this is how to respond to that. And so it spills over. It 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 it, it snowballs. Like first of all, you dislike your injuries, or maybe even dislike your depression, and get angry about that. But the reality of it underneath is just recognizing things as something dis something that you don't like, and so you develop this habit of reacting in that way towards things you don't like. And you become more and more sensitive, more and more attuned to this way of reacting, and more and more in a rut where it's the only way you can react to something that you don't like. So mindfulness or meditation works to change our habits. That's why mindfulness is so valuable, because it's a new habit. It's changing your habits. When there's something you don't like and you say to yourself, disliking, disliking, changes that habit. So I would suggest that the why of it is not as important um, as the just trying to get a better relationship with it, a relationship where you see it for what it is, and you only see it for what it is without any more baggage. So the depression, seeing it as it is, physical injuries, seeing them clearly, and it's not intellectual, it means how you perceive them, right? So you don't perceive them as something disliked. You perceive them as pain as pain, depression as, well, disliking, I guess. Your physical state as a concept that you think about. When you see your physical injuries, when you think about your physical injuries. Trying to have a relationship where you just see them as what they are, and that's what the noting practice does for you gives you that sort of relationship. So you know you don't want to hurt others. Well, the thing is others and you, but neither, neither of those things actually exist in that moment. There's only the perception of something disliked and the accepted or, or familiar reaction uh, response of, of getting angry, right? And, and lashing out. It's just habit. So mindfulness will help you break that habit. It's slowly. I mean, mindfulness isn't going to force the habits to change. It's not going to make you stop. It's just going to help you see more clearly, have a better relationship with reality, and therefore have better responses. How long do you recommend a formal session to be for both walking and sitting meditation, especially for someone training alone? I recommend doing them, trying to do them an equal amount, like half walking and then half sitting. But there really is no answer to that question. Start, for many people, I would even just recommend starting at 10 minutes walking, 10 minutes sitting. 15 minutes walking, 15 minutes sitting. Um, but, but I, I mean, to give a better answer is as you progress, 
try and aim for half an hour walking, half an hour sitting. I mean, of course, we get up to an hour walking, an hour sitting, but I'd only really recommend that when you have a lot of time or when you've been practicing and building up to it. Uh, I mean, the, the, the thing to note about this, uh, large amounts of meditation is you should balance number of sessions with length of sessions. So you shouldn't do too few long sessions or too many short sessions. It should be somewhere in the middle. So you'd only get up to an hour, one hour, one hour if you're doing multiple sessions a day, you see. Otherwise, you'd want to do like three one-hour sessions, three 30-30 sessions, that sort of thing, or two 30-30 sessions. It's, it's, uh, there's different. There's more factors than just how long should the session be. But to be clear, I mean, any meditation is great. Do what you can, and work your way up as you as you feel comfortable. I've been meditating for years and still suffer greatly. My attachments are as strong as ever. I'm not sure what I'm doing wrong. Do I need to practice eight or more hours a day in intensive practice? Well, I don't know. Have you done our at-home course? I would recommend you might consider trying that. We could get you maybe uh, some some things straightened out. This is the practice helps you with things like this, uh, or the, sorry, the course helps you with things like this. It's this, as I said, this um, adjusting your practice, analyzing it through we monks. Uh, it's not intellectual. We don't go into anything intellectual. I just ask you questions and remind you about things you might have missed and that sort of thing. This is an important part of the practice, having a teacher. Um, but one thing I would say is, that, again, I don't know what you're, you mean by meditating for years because that doesn't yet tell me what sort of meditation you're doing or, or, or you know, a lot of the details, right? But um, one, one thing that is often much more important than not suffering or even having fewer attachments is the fact that you can see them more clearly and you have a better you have a better grasp of the sort of attachments you have so it seems like they're still as strong as ever because first of all they're going to be the same as ever your attachments are not suddenly going to disappear and you'll get a whole bunch of new attachments they'll keep coming back and the first step isn't to even reduce them the first step is to see them clearly and to see the nature of attachment clearly. And that that's that's equally important because or not equal that's equally valuable uh, because it changes the way you respond to attachment. When you understand how attachment works and how it causes you suffering, you say you're suffering greatly. Perhaps you're actually you're seeing that more clearly than before. You're realizing more how you suffer greatly because of your you know, because of things like your attachments. And that does change how you relate to your attachments, how intent you are, how keen you are to act on your attachments, right? So they might be very strong, but you might be less inclined to act on them because of what you've seen. That's how insight works, and it just takes more and perhaps even more intensive practice to really attenuate them. I promised my partner to start a family, but since I started meditating, I realized that this can slow my progress. 
How difficult is it to have success with the practice while raising a family? So this is one of the difficult questions. Um, it's, it's difficult because part of the answer is very, very difficult. But let's let's be clear. Practically speaking, it's 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 not technically correct for me to say it's going to be very difficult. But practically, it is. I mean, it's a it's. I think it's a valid answer, and it's a pretty good answer to say. Yeah, pretty difficult. Children are are a terrible burden for someone who's interested in meditation practice. But I guess two things. First of all, that's not always the case, of course, and so you can't categorically say that. It's quite possible that your children could be a support on your path to enlightenment. I mean, I I've, have a hard time thinking of how that could be, but um, it's certainly things can't stop you on your path to enlightenment. It's only your state of mind that can get in your own way. And the other thing is I'm in a position to tell you things from a Buddhist perspective. And that's not the only perspective you have, perhaps. Um, I, what I'm going to tell you is something for you to keep in mind. And I, I say this just because I don't want you to get upset or get anyone, anyone else to get upset at me because I seem to be so hard on people who have, who have children, for example. But um, there's, there's no question in my mind that from a Buddhist perspective, it's not a good thing to have children. But there are many reasons why people have children. Nobody has reasons think has sorry. Nobody has children thinking, "Boy, this will really help me on my path to become enlightened in the Buddhist teaching." Right? I don't think anyone would be that um, would be of that st um, state of understanding. Right? So there are other reasons why you might have children, and just because I tell you that it's going to get in your way doesn't mean. I mean, it, it, it's not, it doesn't mean that you're a bad Buddhist if you have children or you're going to be um, stymied or, or blocked completely from the practice. I would say it's a serious um, hindrance, though. I mean, the Buddha said this, this, I'm safe here because the Bodhisattva apparently left home and we have you know, canonical texts that affirm that, yep, this is a, a burden, or this is a, a shackle. This is a binding. Having a child is it's not a not a small undertaking because it becomes your duty to look after them. It becomes your duty to take them on. One of the things I've always been most horrified by is the fact that you don't know what they're going to be like, and yet you have to teach them. So all if my students, if they're not, if they're not um, keen and interested, I just tell them, you know, go away. <laughs> I can just say to them, I'm sorry, I can't teach you. Or, you know, they just go away because they don't want to learn from me. But that doesn't work with children. And I can't imagine having students who didn't want to learn from me. That's what how children appear to me. So thoughts like that. But absolutely, Buddhists have kids. And... You just have to decide how sincere, how serious you want to be about your practice. And, I mean, having a wife is, is doesn't have to be a real burden, but 
it, it as well is something that doesn't relate to Buddhist practice. So you have a wife or partner, sorry, partner could be a male, a man. Um, you have a partner, could be a man, could be a woman, could be a them, they, I don't know. But um, that's, going, that's a part of this extra Buddhist aspect of your life, you know, outside of Buddhism. So you have to sort of decide how sincere you are about the practice. Sometimes people come to Buddhism and they read this is a hindrance, that is a hindrance, and they decide that they're just going to give everything up. They say, well, in that case, it's telling me that I have to give all this up, so I guess I better do that. But they don't succeed because they don't realize that what's being talked about there is is the end of the path when a person has no attachment to these things and absolutely someone who is ready to go to the end of the path can give them all up but giving them all up isn't going to suddenly take you to the end of the path where you don't need them anymore or you don't want them anymore and so usually what happens is those people quickly or slowly or eventually go right back to where they were and have a partner and children so understand where you're at and understand this, the level of commitment that you intend to have. But when you give up kids, and if your partner wants kids, then that's where it's at. If you really are intent upon that, then it would mean separating from your partner as well, I would think. Either that or convincing them, which, you know, good luck with that. The practice of noting where the mind is being pulled towards from moment to moment via the six senses and then repeatedly pulling it back to the rising and falling is that being concentrated. No, being concentrated is when you see something, when you focus enough on something that you can see it clearly. It's momentary. Every moment that you are grasping an object to the extent that you are able to see it clearly, like you're able to really know this is, is what it is, and that you're able to uh, affirm that it is what it is. That's concentration. My outlook on life is very pessimistic, and I assign a negative value to birth and believe pain counts more. Thinking about the suffering of humans and animals bothers me. Should I change my perspective? Well, uh, no. No, I mean, okay, let's put it this way. See, Changing perspective is not a thing you should do or can do, really. I mean, it's not the way of practice. Your perspective probably should change because it's unpleasant, right? It's a cause for suffering. It bothers you. Being bothered by things uh, implies a perspective that is unhealthy. But you don't, you don't go about changing your perspective. You go about trying to see your perspective or see 
the, the nature of your experience more clearly so that your perspective changes through clarity. That's all. I mean, practically, you'll just start to, through, through the practice, you'll start to see that your, your perspective is causing you stress and suffering and it'll naturally correct itself as a result. Monty, we've crossed the hour, and I think there's one more tier one worth asking. Do you have the time okay. to answer? Go for it. How can I free myself from the prison of my own mind when I am facing life-threatening dangers in a foreign country all by myself? Well, the mind isn't a prison. I mean, kind of it is, but... but um... See, the way out of the prison, and I don't think there's a very good answer to your question, but let's just answer it at face value. The way out of the prison is within. It's to go further in to, to some, in some way. No, it's not to get out of the prison. It's to let go of the prison. Because it's not actually a prison, it's more like a trap. It's like being caught in a trap. And when you free yourself from the trap, well, then you're free. But the thing about this trap is that there's nothing holding us in the trap. We're holding, our, we're holding on to the trap ourselves. It's almost like we're, we're outside the prison, holding on to the prison bars, right? And saying, let me out, let me out. And we should just turn around and say, oh wait, I am out, and let go. It's kind of like that. But um, rather than seeing your mind as a prison, in 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 that way it's not a very useful practice a preliminary practice anyway because it relates to aversion right so try instead to see the garden of your mind see what's in the garden of your mind see what sort of flowers and weeds are there the emotions, the mind states, the thoughts, past and future. When you see them clearly, then you'll let go. Thank you. Questions for today, I think. Okay, thank you, Chris. Thank you. We have Jim, Ulu, Rahid. Whoever's here helping us. Thank you everyone for coming. It's a good session. I appreciate all your questions and interest in the Buddhist teaching. May we all be of benefit from this session and reach freedom from suffering and peace and happiness. Sadhu. Sadhu.